You are listening to Topics in the Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hi, and welcome to the first in my lecture series, I really should say class, on Second Temple period texts. This particular class, this particular lecture is an introduction to the to the series as a whole. So I touch on a lot of texts. If there's something that feels a little quick or you feel you don't have the background, you're not getting it, don't worry. Each one of these texts that I touch on will get its own episode later on. So for example, at First Enoch, you're not clear what I'm talking about or you feel you're missing background, don't worry, I'm going to address it in full in a later episode. There are source sheets. The source sheets are found on my site, understandingsin.com. They are attached to the post. So look up Introduction to Second Temple Literature, and you'll find the post with the source sheets. And of course, if you have any questions, if there's any reference that you missed, or if you have any questions in general, please leave them as comments on that post. I will address them either on the site itself or in a later podcast episode or both. Please keep in mind that this class is given in an Orthodox synagogue. Uh, When we do touch on Christianity, it's actually going to be in a fairly simple or even simplistic way, but uh, please keep the context in mind. And I hope you enjoy the talk. So good evening, everyone, and welcome to the beginning of the class, which is an introduction to Second Temple Literature and Dead Sea Scrolls. Today we're going to be talking more about general Second Temple literature than the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, but we will we will talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls as well. We're going to be talking about, about Second Temple literature and Dead Sea Scrolls, and of course the first question is, what is Second Temple literature? What is it? Where, how do we have it? When was it written? And really, a lot of times, and, and, and this is a bit of a, it's even a mistake on my part, when I say Second Temple literature, I mean things, I usually mean things that didn't get in to the Tanakh, didn't get in here. Now, that's not completely true for a bunch of reasons. First of all, there are things that there are there are books that are explicitly Second Temple literature that are in the Bible. Okay, these are the books that are from the period that we call the Return to Zion, right? Shivat Zion, right? So those are books like uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, Abdivrei uh, Hayamim Chronicles, right? That explicitly placed themselves at that time. Chagai, Zechariah, and Malachi are final minor prophets, right? They seal prophecy, and those are books that belong to the Second Temple period because they're when the Second Temple is being built and is actually in operations. Then you have other books that don't place themselves in the Second Temple period that academically are placed in the Second Temple period. So, for example, Daniel. Daniel is a clear case of this. If you ask any academic, when was Daniel written? He'll say during the Maccabean era. It's talking about Yehuda Maccabee is the, is the, is in general the academic consensus is that the Messiah, quote unquote, of Daniel is Yehuda Maccabee, is Judah the Maccabee. Okay, so they'll say, well, that book was written during, it, it's, a, it's like a Hellenistic book. It's not a or Hellenistic book or a, a Hasmonean work, right? So those, there are books that are explicitly, even, yes. Even according to itself, it's still post-First Temple. It's post-First Temple, and that's, and that's what's important here. Um, so a lot of times people will say, well, why didn't these books make it in to Tanakh? Why didn't they make it into the Hebrew Bible? And I'll say usually it's, it's pretty clear, okay, why they didn't. First of all, one of the basic, what seems to be a basic kind of organizing principle of our Hebrew Bible, which we can call the Judean Bible, right? This is the Bible that's sealed in Yehuda with the destruction of the temple. This is when they say, okay, these are the books that keep getting copied. These are the holy books. And they have to be holy in some way to be in this collection, right? In the book, collection of Tanakh. What do I mean holy in some way? If they're not prophecy, they have to have been inspired by what we call like Ruach HaKodesh, right? The Holy Spirit. There has to have been some kind of divine inspiration for these books. It seems to be the general idea. So Daniel is considered to be divinely inspired. It's in the, what we call the Ketuvim, but it's not in the Nibim. It doesn't make it into, it's not a prophecy, but it's in the writings. It's in the holy writings. So 
what do you need to have for something to be inspired with this holiness? Well, a basic requirement is that it be written before the holiness is gone. And there's this general idea that the return to Zion marks the end of prophecy. Kagai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the seals on the prophets. So if something is clearly written after then, it's clearly composed after that period, then how could it be written with divine inspiration? The divine inspiration, the true divine inspiration, is gone. So, for example, Daniel places itself before that period. So people could read Daniel and say, hey, this book was divinely inspired. It's not really a prophecy. We know that it feels different. That he's not one of the prophets. But it's holy. It's talking, you know, about something that's going to happen. And it was written in the right period when there's still this idea of prophecy and of holiness. And so it makes it in. Other books, which are respected and considered almost authoritative, like the classic example, and I actually didn't bring you a little bit of this this time, Ben Sirah, the book of Ben Sirah, also called the book of Jesus, the son of Sarah. His name is Yeshua, right? So in, in, in Greek, that's Jesus, right? But it doesn't mean it's Christian. It's not Christian in any way. So he was considered authoritative by Chazal. They quote him a couple of times as fairly authoritative, but his book doesn't make it into Tanakh. Why doesn't his book make it into Tanakh? Well, everyone knows when he wrote. He wrote during the Ptolemaic period in Israel, and that is after. It's after the return to Zion. So it just can't get in, okay? Who doesn't have quite the same restriction? Yes. Esther. Esther is a classic example of a book that places itself in the Persian period. So it's before, it's before the, it's just before the return to Zion. It's, it places itself very clearly before the return to Zion. It's, it's, it places itself as if the historical context of Esther is very, very prob- problematic. Okay? And we're going to look at another book that has a very, very problematic historical context very soon. Okay, So it places itself in a very peculiar historical context, but it places itself in the context of the exile from the first temple. Right? That's where it places itself. It says, look, he was, right, Mordecai is one of the people who went out. Right? He was exiled. Who, who can forget that great tune, right? We all, we have this, this is the, the, we sing it in Echatrop, right? So the, it places itself, it doesn't place itself during the time of rebuilt temple, put it that way, right? If you read Esther, it sounds like this is after the destruction of the first temple and before the building of the second temple. If you don't look at the kings too closely, right? Who's Achashverosh? So that's the story with Esther. Esther is one of the problematic ones. Like when, when someone says to me, why didn't X book get, why didn't other books get into Tanakh? I say the real question is how did Daniel and Esther make it, right? That's always the question. Even though they place themselves in the right period, right, before the return to Zion, when there's still prophecy and there's still this holiness, they're still very different books. They have a they're very different feel. Then what we have, so we have Tanakh, which is a relatively, you could say, conservative collection. Right? And the idea seems to be these books have to be holy, right? They have to become generally accepted as holy. Of course, the the, the argument of the Song of Songs is fairly circular. How do we know Song of Songs is holiness? Is holy? Well, it made it in. Why did it make it in? Because it's holy, right? But but we and we have we have things like that. But however, um, that seems to be the general organizing principle. These books have to be holy and they have to be, have been written or considered to have been written during the time when this holiness existed to be drawn from. Then we get to the Septuagint. Now, I brought this, the new Oxford Annotated Bible, a new Revised Standard Version with the Apocrypha, right? Because your standard study Bible, because the Christians kept the Apocrypha, will frequently keep, also have the Apocrypha. Okay, what are the Apocrypha? There was a very large Jewish community in Alexandria, okay, um, who very who at some point no longer understood Hebrew. However, they were committed Jews, they were committed to learning, they were committed to Judaism, and they translated the Bible. Okay, so they translated, first they translated the five... To some extent, they were Hellenized Jews. Oh, well, yes. I mean, they lived in Hellenistic Egypt, right? But this is Second Temple period. This is Second Temple period. One of our sources for what Alexandrian Jews were like, a contemporary source, is Philo. He lives, so he writes about 40 CE, okay? So it's before the destruction, okay? Um towards the end of the Second Temple period that we, we, we point to him. The Alexandrian Jewish community was but was a fairly long standing. And what happened was they simply translated all the books that they considered important, which were a lot more, right, than just these books. Because their rule didn't seem to be these books had to be holy. These books had to be important and have good messages and not be 
really crazy weird, <laughs> okay? Because we get, there really is a difference between what we call the apocalypse. This, this is my academic, you know, division. Is Daniel in there, though? Of course, yeah, sure, Daniel is in there. Look, anything that's going... Certainly there's a lot of weird. Oh, yeah, yeah. There, there are differences, though. For example, there are big differences between Yermiahu in, in the Hebrew Bible and, and Yermiahu, Jeremiah, in the Septuagint. So there are differences in the books, right? Because they're translating from a specific text of the Bible, okay? The differences don't get in at the level of translation. They got in at some stage earlier, okay? They're translating a specific version of the Bible, which is different in certain so places from ours. translation is the Septuagint? It's a good question, okay. There are different versions. There are different versions of the Septuagint, okay? So, so it's, I can't say, you know, and then, they, then there are people who do this thing called Septuagint studies, and they actually trace versions of the Septuagint. Okay, so but in general, let's just simplify it. We can say it's uh, the Alexandrian Bible. However, there's a there's a difference between the translation of Chamishachum Shei Torah, the five books of Moses, and the rest of the Bible. So we call that the Old Greek a lot of times, and they call it the Septuagint because it's earlier. The translation is earlier, and then they translate each book kind of as it comes. And and these books, so these books have to be, they have to not pretty much jive with the Judaism we're familiar with. They don't have to like, they can, they can still stretch it a little far, but they're not going to, you're not going to usually read in the, in the Apocrypha about a different calendar, for example. Okay. You're not going to read about something that really, really conflicts with what we consider, what we think about as a kind of a, a, an early standard Judaism. They'll have interesting ideas, but they have what they can, were considered either good messages or be important. Okay. So here, let's look at just to give you an example, here are some examples. So Ben Sira, for example, makes it into the Septuagint pretty handily. His grandfather, his grandson, Ben Sira's grandson translates his book from Hebrew <coughs> to Greek and includes a little foreword. And so we have that in, in the Apocrypha. Uh, another book, if you're familiar with the Apocrypha that we're very familiar with, is Judith, the book of Judith. If you guys will read with me for just the first line, it was the twelfth year of the reign of this is supposed to be Nebuchadnezzar, okay? The reign of Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled over the Assyrians from Nineveh, the great city. What's the problem with that sentence? Nebuchadnezzar ruled Babel. Right, Nebuchadnezzar ruled Babel. He darn well didn't rule Assyria. No, he he did... ruled over Assyria, though. Yeah, but this is but but <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, but, so, but right, right, but not from Nineveh, and so. There's a clear, and this is what I meant, that there are some books, this book in particular seems to purposely set up a historical context that everyone who reads it will know is problematic. In other words, everyone who reads it from that first line will know there's something wrong here. Okay? And that's why the... Um, I think it's deliberately wrong. I think it's deliberately wrong. I think it's deliberately meant to tip you off that this is not something, this is not meant to be a story. Because look, very early on, when we think of Judith, what are we connected to? Hanukkah, right? We connected to the, the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, right? That's what we connected to. There's a good reason for that in that what it's describing is it's describing kind of the Jews in their land rebelling against an overlord. Right. And it seems to be that and that's and so very quickly it becomes connected in Jewish tradition to Hanukkah to, and to the Hasmoneans. And it is considered academically to be talking about that period. Now, there's a big question because we're, we're going to it's one of the reasons why I brought the beginning of several books. And some of these books, you wonder, how seriously are we supposed to take this attribution? How seriously were people meant to believe it? And sometimes it seems really clear that they're supposed to believe it. Right? And then, of course, the question is, well, what did the author think he was doing? Right? There's a place in Enoch where it says, beware of all these fake books right? written. You know? And here, the person who's writing it is writing a fake book. So what does he think he's doing? Right? I don't understand. Yeah. Why would they do that? What, what was the reasoning that they wanted to write misinformation? Okay. So, um, the... <laughs> yeah, yes, that also would help to get someone elected. But, but, but the idea is, the idea is, the idea is that you're going to be taken, your book is going to be taken seriously, and will only be taken seriously. Well, look at look at Ben Sira, right? If Ben Sira had written his book, but said it was written by Shlomo Hamelach, it maybe could have gotten into Tanakh. Like, who knows, right? Like, because because then it would say, oh, look, Shlomo Hamelach wrote in this great stuff. Right, which people really quoted, like people really took it seriously. But he said, I'm Ben Sira and this is my book. And everyone's like, well, it's Ben Sira, so like we know him, you know? And so that doesn't make it into, into Tanakh. So 
if you want your book to be taken seriously, your best bet is to place it in some kind of historical context. And we're going to see this with some of these with some of these examples. Pseudepigraphy? <laughs> Pseudepigraphy is writing under a fake name, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So just a second, yes. But the, um, with Judas, the music was written, and it clearly takes the Yael sister story out of, but it's, that, that's yeah, it, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Does that mean that, that whoever wrote it, wrote it for people who didn't really know no, I, I, no, 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 no. I, I think I think will be hard. I think will be hard to do. Yeah, I think I think that it's written for people who darn well know. Yeah. 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 yeah it's right. I think but that it's written. I think that all these books assume that you know your Bible, right? But then people aren't going to say, "Wait a second, I know this story." That's not the point for them. But that's not the point. Yeah, that is the point. Also, also, it's a little different. It's a little bit more detailed, uh, and 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 it's and it's a little bit more um, graphic. Prurient, right? In terms of the way it sets up, in terms of the way it sets up what Judith does, but at the same time, it's very interesting because Judith is this pure widow who seems to be—I mean, who seems to be a stand-in for Zion. In other words, she's a widow who is pure, right? And there's this—we could go into Judith at a, at a later date, but but yeah, no, I think I think, and in fact, in Jubilees there are there's—I remember at least one section where you would not understand it if you didn't already know the Bible. Right, like in other words, there's an assumption here that you know Tanakh, right? This isn't look. If you're, I know that there are some people say, oh well, these were performed, so you couldn't have to be literate. In general, if you're writing this book, you're thinking in a literate way. Many of the people reading the book are reading it in a literate way. They know they know Tanakh. Right? So who is it being written for? Who's the audience? Right. So who's the audience? This is the I question. Know the audience. Yeah. What? Right. How influenced the craft by? I mean, Greek culture. It is as, Greek, as Greek culture, and not just and not just Greek culture. Babylonian scribal culture, for example, seems to have had an effect on on a lot of the astronomical texts. There's a certain scribal culture that is actually more in touch with each other than the regular guys. I mean, I was actually so just yeah, thinking in terms of Greek literature that we know. There's a lot of historical Oh, fiction. yeah, look, I know that, no, look, it, 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 like if you go, when we get into the story of the Watchers, there's absolutely an approach that says that it was affected by the story of the Titans, right? So so we'll get, like, there, there's absolutely that kind of cross-pollination. I mean, the average person doesn't know, doesn't uh, have books, right? They don't have scrolls, so who... Who is the, who is the okay. audience? Who so, is so look, it, it, was, it depends. If you're talking about... Um, a relatively, you're you're right in general, and this is one of the things that I, I say was specific when it comes to like the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? The Dead, the, the, the big conflicts were between people who were learning, right? The the big conflicts were between the people who were like who were like the intelligentsia, right? Who were like they're reading, they're learning, they're discussing, right? Your regular guy, right, is trying to keep. He's got he's circumcised, but like there's certain things he does as a Jew, right? So he's circumcised. He keeps Shabbat, he keeps some form of kashrut, he keeps some form of purity. Every now and then he tries to make it to the temple, right, to the Beit HaMikdash. And there you go, he's okay, right? This is how he stays good with God and his people, and he does feel like he feels connected, and he probably doesn't worry to the same extent as some of these guys do about what's the correct calendar. He's like, this is the calendar, this is what they're doing, now it's Yom Kippur, they told me, I know now, right? <laughs> That's... I don't think that your regular guy on the street was bothering with this. But a lot of these books... Now, when we get to the Apocrypha, some of these books were pro probably were read out loud. Some of them are darn good yarns, you know? And you can understand why they would why they would like it. A lot of these books are um, also kind of biblical interpretation. This we'll get to some in a second. So we talked a little bit about Judith. So right underneath it is Tobit. Tobit is one of the books that I think of as a, as a darn good yarn because it's a Tobit who is righteous, um, he gets he gets blinded by like bird poop in his eyes. People know that I like this, this uh, setup. And and he, and then his son goes and he to get a cure, accompanied by an angel, unbeknownst to him, right? And the angel helps him out. And there's a girl there who's who the demon Ashmedai, right? The demon Ashmedai kills off all her bridegroom. Right, so he's killed mm -hmm. off like seven bridegrooms because he's in love with her. Right, so on the wedding night, these guys get killed. 
and uh, Tobit's son goes and he realizes that she's his cousin. He's like, well, she's my cousin. I'm responsible for her. Um, I should marry her. And everyone's like, you know, it's been nice knowing you, kid. <laughs> and the angel helps him out and tells him what to do to get rid of the demon. He gets rid of the demon. He prays to God. Everything is wonderful. And then the angel tells him how to cure his father. He cures his father. Every Everyone is rewarded. And it's a fun story, right? And it teaches you good good things. It teaches you to bury your dead. And it teaches you to marry relatives. And it teaches you it teaches you, no, it teaches you to take care of you know, your family and all these different things. Happy end. You know, it's, it's got a happy end. So you could absolutely understand why someone would think this is a great thing to read on a cold night. Yeah. And in fact, like I remember once I was going in a museum, I, it was the Met, the Met or something, a big museum, and there was a Dutch tapestry on the wall, and I got really excited because it was all scenes from Tobit. Right? Why was it all scenes from Tobit? Because Tobit is part of the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha made it into the Christian Bible. Okay? Who got rid of the Apocrypha from the it, Christian it's, Bible? It's, it's still considered Apocrypha. It's not considered part of the Bible. Okay. It's called okay. So this is the this is the the thing. The Catholics. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the Catholics included it. <coughs> Why? Because you had the the Gospels are written to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of Hebrew prophecy. So the Gospels don't work very well if you don't have the Hebrew prophecy, right? So they needed they needed Tanakh. To, in Greek to go along with the, with the New Testament when they sent it out along the Mediterranean, right? So they've got the Tanakh in Greek. That's, that's the Septuagint. They said, great. They take this. They put the New Testament, smack them together. I'm, I'm simplifying. <laughs> and they, and they sent it out, right? So what does that book have in it? It has the Apocrypha, right? It's got all these other books. Now, once that, that, collection goes around the Christian world, Christians find their own meaning. So Judith becomes the church. Judith represents the church in Christian lore, right? So they find their own meaning in these books. Once the pro with the Protestant Reformation, they're like, wait a second, these books aren't in the Hebrew Bible. They're clearly fake. They're clearly, they shouldn't be there. They're apocryphal, right? We'll get them out, right? And that's what they did. They took them out, right? And then, um, and then, and so now they have, they're called Apocrypha, intertestamental literature. They have, right. Look, the name Apocrypha means hidden things. Okay. Why you would use that word for these books, which were never hidden is beyond me unless, and, and it's one of those puzzles, but that's what they're called. It works well with the way we use apocryphal today. In other words, when we say apocryphal, we mean not for not real, true. not true. But I think that's based on apocrypha as opposed to the other way around. In other words, these apocrypha are apocryphal, right? Hebrew is safer than so which makes right. my life much easier, right? In Hebrew, you just call them external books. They're external to the Bible. It's a modern term, and it also it, well, it, it's a, it's the same. No, it's not a modern term. It goes Shemchitzonim goes goes way back because you know you have to know what not to read, right? So these are the external books. These are the Sfarim Chitzonim. You're not allowed to read because they're not in the Bible. Ah, right. They don't they don't cause impurity of the hands because only books that make it into the Bible cause impurity of the hands, and that's how we know in Baba Batra which books made it in and which books didn't. In case we didn't know already, okay, which we did. Yeah, but um, spoiler alert, we did. Uh, yes. <laughs> the people who wrote the Septuagint, or at least some of them. No, no, no. The Septuagint, I, I want to I just be very... The Septuagint is just a translation of the Bible with the Apocrypha, okay? okay. So, okay, so that's the translation. Right, the people responsible for that, and Philo, were any of these people aware of the existence and or myth of Jesus? I, in, a, in a, Alexandria, almost certainly, I would say almost certainly not. Okay, not in not in not in forty because you know that wouldn't have worked, right? Well, it was right yeah. after the crucifixion. Yeah, yeah but it was still so a, many. There's so many crucifixions. So many people crucified. So the answer is is no, right? It's it's no, and um, it's only after the destruction that that Christianity really uh, starts spreading anyway. And we forget how local how local a thing it was, right? I mean, it's not true because Paul starts going out, right? While the temple's still standing, he starts going and spreading, spreading the good word, you know? So, so there's a certain spread, there's a certain spread, but it doesn't seem to have at all, if I, well, we wouldn't know, because these guys were too early to be affected, okay? And Philo certainly doesn't, his, Philo's big problem is his nephew, who's kind of converting to, 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 who's like, who's like, 
going off the derech, you could call it. He's going away. He's yeah, yeah, yeah. He's kind of going off because he's because he's rising in the ranks and he's trying to get his nephew to stay Jewish, quote unquote. So that uh, yeah, I think they thought they were doing something good and necessary. And then you have the the, the letter. Of their time. Uh, yeah, yeah, or even more because because art scroll is like, oh well, this is for the people who like can't, but most people can, or whatever the art scroll says. Mm-hmm. Um, they they knew that people weren't going to be able right to read it. And not only that, but we have a text called the Letter of Aristeas, which is then concluded in the Septuagint, which you've probably heard of which talks about the miraculous translation into Greek of the five books. It's not talking about everything. It's talking about the five books, how they were miraculously translated into Greek, and all the rabbis, all the guys, all the rabbis translating agreed, and they got the same translation. And it was, it was a miraculously, it was a divinely inspired translation. Philo says that means that I can quote the Greek Bible as if Moses said it. Right? And that's what he does. He'll say, Moses said, and he'll quote the Greek, and then he'll analyze the Greek words. Okay? He, a lot of people think he didn't. He had like, apparently he had word lists. There's an argument. Okay? Some people that do feel that he knew Hebrew, the general, there seems to be a general tendency to say that he didn't. At any rate, he, when he's talking about the Bible, he's talking about the Greek. At the same time, this comes up a lot when I talk about the Septuagint. When the Talmud says, when the Talmud says, oh, the Septuagint, they changed certain, in the Septuagint is 70 wise people, and in the Talmud is 72, right? They, they changed, they changed the, um, the translation so as not to lead people astray, right? So God says, na'aseh adam, let us make man, and that was changed, not in the Septuagint we have. In the Septuagint we have, it's pretty literal, it says, let us make man, okay? They're talking about. What they're talking about, we don't know. Now, there were different versions of the Septuagint. We know of a whole bunch of them, right? So it's like, it doesn't mean that they didn't have a version of the Septuagint that made those changes, okay? But it's not the one that we have, right? Can we, um, can we sort of derive the purpose of the project? Was it to hold on to the Jewish people, or was it possibly to go beyond that and maybe missionize and, and make Judaism appealing? There's to an idea world? that Philo was pro-missionizing, I think that they were too busy trying to stay together as Jews. Like I, I think, no, I think that they were very happy to to when people were converted. And we know that there were kind of non-Jewish hangers-on, but we know that there were non-Jewish people who were connected to synagogues, right? Right, the people who were connected to like to synagogues and stuff like that. And by the way, that's one of the ways that Christianity spread. Paul would go and he'd go to the city and he'd like, hey, look, Alonzman, let's invite him to speak in the synagogue, right? And he'd go and speak and he's got, and they don't have just Jews listening, there are non-Jews listening in the synagogue. And they're like, wow, you mean we can do this without being circumcised? That's excellent, right? Because that was a big barrier to entry, as one can imagine. And so this is one of the ways it spread was the fact that there were non-Jews who were coming to Jewish um, synagogues, etc. Okay? Yes? I had always assumed that when it was translated into Greek, it was as a piece of literature, not religious. Uh, no, so it was religious. It was, it was quite, yeah, look, look, Philo talks about how, what do you do on Shabbat? You learn all day. That's what he says. You go to the synagogue and you learn all day. That's what he says. So, so the, um, um. And later the rabbis commissioned another translation into Greek because the Septuagint became associated. They were against translating into Greek. They're against. Associated with. Christianity. I don't. I don't know why they would do that when they're so against the Septuagint that they quote. They quote the Septuagint like they say the Septuagint that they say was changed in order to. Say, they say, "Oh, what a terrible day it was! And it was translated and da 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 da." You know why? Because because and and the reason historically it actually it, it, it makes sense because what happened in fact was that with the Septuagint, um, Christians said, "This is our Bible." Right and 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 we're doing it better than you, right? Um, and they had access to the Bible. They're like they could argue about the Bible, and they're like, "This is our book now." And and there was this idea: we're doing it better. We're the younger brother, quote unquote. You're Asaph, we're Yaakov, right? And there was this whole this whole kind of <coughs> argument debate. 
and there was this idea that like, oh, if they, if they only didn't have access to the Bible, we wouldn't have this problem. It would just be our book and that would be it. And when in Alexandria they translated it, they wanted it, it, first of all, it's almost certain that certainly the five, for certainly the five books of Moses, they translated almost certainly to be like read in the synagogue. Like they translated it to be read and not as pieces of literature. And the rest of the books, as they, because they were important, Right? They were translated or brought into the collection. So if we continue on, so we looked at Tobit. Now let's look at 2nd Maccabees. 2nd Maccabees has a very interesting history. Okay? And again, this is an example um, of the different books you find in, in the Apocrypha that's part of the Septuagint. Now, 2nd Maccabees, we, we're so used to like 1st Kings, 2nd Kings, 1st Samuel, 2nd Samuel. 2nd Maccabees is not the second part of 1st Maccabees, okay? 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees, two different books. 1st Maccabees is a translation of the Hebrew, of a Hebrew account, um, which second. was apparently written, what? 2nd is a translation. 1st Maccabees oh. is a translation into Greek of a Hebrew account, probably a Hebrew book, written kind of as a Hasmonean divrei hayamim, kind of the Hasmonean Chronicles. Second Maccabees, which you have a piece of here, is a was a Greek work to begin with. It was abridged, apparently. And then, in other words, it was written outside of, of Israel. It was abridged. And in Yehuda, they decided to repurpose it and use it as a way to kind of sell Hanukkah outside of Yehuda. So they, they sent it back with a letter. And this beginning of the letter is what you have here. So in other words... This letter is actually, is actually from Yehuda saying, the fellow um, Judeans in, so this is Jerusalem, and those in the land of Judea to their Judean brothers in Egypt, greetings and true peace. May God do good to you. Da, 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 da. May give you all a heart to worship him, etc., etc. May he heed, etc., etc. We are now praying for you here. In other words, we, the Jews of Yehuda, are praying for you in Jerusalem, are praying for you in Egypt, right? Out in Alexandria. In the reign of Demetrius, in the 169th year, we Judeans wrote to you in the critical distress that came upon us in those years after Jason and his company revolted from the Holy Land and the kingdom and burned the gate and shed innocent blood. We prayed to the Lord and were heard and we offered sacrifice and grain offering and we lit the lamps and set out the loaves. And now see that you keep the days of the Feast of Ten Pitching, in other words, the, the, the days of Sukkot in the month of Kislev. Because it's eight days in Kislev, keep them. This is the Judean introduction to a book that's reached Yehuda from outside of Israel, which was written about what was going on in Yehuda before and during the Maccabean revolt. And the original is in, the is in Greek. The original is in Greek, and it was written in order to explain the day of Nicanor, which no one keeps anymore, right? And the day of Nicanor, because they thought that Nicanor, that that battle essentially was it, that won right? And that's when this book is written, right? And then, then it's taken and repurposed to say, no, this is why we celebrate Hanukkah. It was, it was during the battle of Nicanor. It was when we won the battle of Nicanor. So it was the day before Purim, right? It was the day before Purim. In other words, it was Tanit Esther, right? It was Tanit Esther, the day of Nicanor. The, the prologue was added later. Uh, the prologue was added later, right. The prologue was added later. And also certain other things seem to have been inserted later, right? And then they sent it back to Alexander saying, this is why you keep Hanukkah. So um, what's happening, Second Maccabees has a very interesting history where they're, 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 um, you see kind of this back and forth, and you also see different points where people thought it was over. If you read Second Maccabees, and Second Maccabees and First Second Maccabees gives you a very good background of why the whole thing happened, First Maccabees takes you through this very long battle where the consecration of the reconsecration of the Beit HaMikdash was not at all the end of the story. It was in the middle of a raging battle in Jerusalem, right? But the decision after the whole thing was over was, how are we going to commemorate this? We're going to commemorate this through the consecration of the Beit HaMikdash. We're going to, we're going to celebrate it through Hanukkah. And they send out to Diaspora, celebrate Hanukkah, right? And then this makes it into, in Greek, into the um, the Apocrypha. So that's the Apocrypha and the Septuagint. These are books that are, they're interesting. Sometimes they're a little weird, but they usually don't. Sometimes they inform us more. So for example, the first, second Maccabees, the first of all, they mention miracles, but also they're very important books. You can understand why the Alexandrian Jewish community kept them. You can also understand why the Judean community said they're not holy. These aren't holy books where they're not going to make them part of our Bible. Okay. Now, once you get into the pseudepigrapha, now these are all being written in while the second temple is standing. Okay. 
Uh, when we get into Pseudepigrapha, also the first two books I'm quoting here are written while the Second Temple is standing. The last one is written right after the destruction of the Second Temple. Pseudepigrapha gets into um, true weirdness. Okay, so if we can understand here, it's like even the Alexandrian Jews said, you know what? This is this is just not right. Okay, this is not making it. Now, it could be they just didn't reach them, right? However, how do we have these books? The same way that we have the Apocrypha because they made it into the Christian Bible, we have Pseudepigrapha because they made it into some Christian Bible. In other words, First Enoch and Jubilees were kept by the Ethiopian church. These books were translated, um, Enoch was translated from Aramaic into Greek and then into um, Gez. And Jubilees was translated from Hebrew into Greek and then into Gez. Okay. So what is the Ethiopian church? Coptic. It's it's not no 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 Coptic. It's not Coptic. That's the they hate that's, each other. that's the Egyptian yeah. church. No, it's the Ethiopian church. It's if if you can, uh, you know, you've seen Ethiopian priests kind of walk around here, right? Like the mm-hmm. you know, um, it's the Ethiopian church. When you say, um, it goes back. It goes back before the language. They're the, yes. first, they're the first uh, country to become uh, Christian uh, I mean, outside of I mean, uh, not according to uh, not according to them maybe uh, no, not according <laughs> to a lot of historians too they, they were actually the first one outside right. Right. So, so they kept these very unusual books the, and Ethiop- they're the, the Ethiopian Jews and the Ethiopian <laughs> Christians evidence shows that they basically evolved in parallel well yeah and the fact is that the Ethiopian oh, church for a long time there was a debate whether they should keep Shabbat on Saturday so when you say, oh, look, Ethiopian Jews keep Shabbat on Saturday, well, so did a lot of Christians. There was a, a long-standing debate about whether they should do that. So we have Enoch and Jubilees because they made it into the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian Bible. And we have many, many copies of this actually still in Gez. In I know someone who's doing the critical edition of First Enoch, and he they go to Addis Ababa and you know sit with all these manuscripts because there are tons of them, and the version of Enoch that we have is based on maybe five, right? And there are but or three or even fewer, like three three to five, I think. Just a, a, a yes. When was the do you know when, when was the Eureka moment when people looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls that had just been. Say, wow, this literature exists in Ethiopia. When, when, well, I, when people that? already knew about Jubilees in Enoch. In other words, long before they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were reading these books, right? Especially since, for example, First Enoch was important to the church fathers or to some of them. So these were books that people knew about. And so I believe that they recognized them as early as they found them. It is an important thing to note that the reason we know for sure that these books are Jewish, like they were always considered to be Jewish because they didn't have a lot of Christian interpolations or anything like that. But you know for Enoch and Jubilees that we found fragments of them in the Dead Sea Scrolls. At the same time, we probably would never have been able to understand the fragments in the Dead Sea Scrolls if we hadn't had these books. In other words, we could paste them on and say, oh yeah, we recognize, we see what's going on. But at the same, but it helps us understand the fragments rather than fragments. In, in a couple of cases, and we'll talk about it later in this class, they do shed some light on the, on the books. But usually not. <laughs> so here we have uh, First Enoch. First Enoch is, it's a book, it's about, it's about uh, Enoch, it's about Hanoch, okay? Hanoch who is, a, who is no longer because God took him, right? And the way people read it in the Second Temple period was, was he's taken by Elohim, meaning angels, right? And so the question is, why was he taken by angels? What did he see up there? What was his, you know, why, why him, right? So there are all sorts of little books written about Enoch, and a bunch of them are collected in the book we call First Enoch, okay? They don't have much in common besides the fact that they have Enoch as a character, all right? And they're from different periods, right? So the, the Book of the Watchers is considered uh, the earliest one, but they go, but they, they continue to be written and they're collected in this collection called Enoch. Here we have just like a, an introduction to see, see you know, uh, the words of the blessing of Enoch, and Enoch answered and said there was a righteous man whose eyes were opened by the Lord, talking about himself, right? And the idea is, and I heard everything from them, and I understood what I saw, but not for this generation, but for a distant generation which will come. This was a very important theme in certain Second Temple books, is the seeing what's going to happen at the end of days. We've never seen, have we, any any uh, individual books that uh, comprise the Book of Enoch, right? I mean, what, what 
we're saying about the separate books, that's like Book of Enoch source criticism. No, 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 because you have to read it. You'll you'll see. Like you you if you ever have the fun experience of reading through the whole book, I'm not yeah, saying it's not I, accurate source criticism. No, 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 no. It's not source. It's not that kind of source criticism. I understand what you're saying. Um, there are places where they're like saying, "Oh no, we think uh, one to sixteen is one thing, and something like like that," and you, then you can argue. But in most cases, they're very clearly delineated as different books. You know, they they really look like different books. In other words, it's not no one no one did any hardcore editing to make them look like one book. Okay, so so you you read it through. I remember when I read it through, I didn't know they were supposed to be different books. It was it was very <laughs> distressing and frustrating. But but it, it really it's very clearly different books actually. Um, so Enoch and Jubilees are popular in the Dead Sea. They were um, Jubilees was for sure popular because they quote it, they and Enoch and Enoch they found right. I, um, there's an argument. There is just so you know, uh, there's this name guy named uh, Gabriele Boccaccini, and he <laughs> thinks uh, he believes in this thing called Enochian <coughs> Judaism that there was this different type of Judaism based on Enoch. And there's no proof for it at all. There's no reason to say it. You have the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea community has books of Enoch alongside all sorts of rule books. Because one of the ideas is that he says, well, in the books of Enoch, they, in the book of Enoch, it doesn't mention laws. Laws are not central in the book of Enoch. Like there are in, for example, Jubilees. And Jubilees laws are quite central. So in Enoch, they're not, right? So he's like, oh, there's this other type of Enochian Judaism, and they care about your mysticism and stuff like that, and less about law. And I, there's really no basis for it, particularly if you look in the Dead Sea Scrolls where they have all these books together, right? Mm-hmm. So it would seem like these are these are kind of kind of wisdom books, wisdom mysticism. There's a, a, a there's a, the astronomical book of Enoch, which is you know talking talking about astronomy. Do um, you think it's an, sorry? You think it's an indication they viewed these books as holy books? Worthy yeah. to study. Yeah, I mean, no, 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 absolutely. Was, in, in the Dead yeah. Sea community, I would say they almost certainly viewed these as holy books, uh, Enoch at least, and Jubilees. Make, it makes sense. They had a lot of books like that, though. Right. Um, so Enoch and Jubilees, well, Enoch does involve cer- a certain amount of biblical interpretation, which is interesting. And uh, Jubilees is real biblical interpretation. Jubilees is a retelling of the Bible from, you could say, the beginning of beginning of Genesis to the giving of the Torah, right, uh, in Shemot, and then it kind of skips to, like, what's going to happen, right, at the end of days, sort of, and here we have in Jubilees, the prologue, how, the question is, of course, where are these books from, right, so first Enoch is supposed to be from Enoch, a Jubilees is supposed to be a book that's given to Moshe alongside the Torah, right, mm-hmm. these are the words regarding the divisions, the times, the law, and the testimony of the events, the years, or the weeks, of their jubilees throughout all the years of eternity as he related them, weeks being being like sets of Shemitah, like seven years, jubilees being jubilee, right, 49 or 50 years, as he related them to Moshe, sorry, this is a, a verse number, to Moshe on Mount Sinai when he went up to receive the stone tablets, the law and the commandments on the Lord's orders as he had told him that he should come up to the summit of the mountain, and then we're skipping, it says, then he, namely God, said to an angel of the presence, dictate to Moses, starting from the beginning of the creation until the time when my temple was built, among them throughout the ages of eternity. So, and he says, write this book, Jubilees, right? There's Torah, and then there's kind of this, the, the real story, that's Jubilees, right? And he writes it down. And until the time of the new creation, when the heavens, the earth, and all their creatures will be renewed, like the powers of the sky, and like all the creatures of the earth, until the time when the temple of the Lord will be created in Jerusalem on time. So in other words, Jubilees is supposed to be the real story of Breshit through a bunch of Shemot, and then what's going to happen at the end of time. It tells the story in divisions of Jubilee years and Shemitah here, sets of seven, Right, and it 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 uh, espouses like Enoch, by the way. Both of them espouse a solar year, as opposed to the lunar solar year that was that was kept in in the Beit Hamikdash in the Temple. Anyone who knows Dead Sea Scrolls, Dead Sea Scrolls also kept all, were also espoused a solar year, whether they kept it or not is a question because they believed in a three hundred sixty four day year, and supposedly they existed for a hundred years. So if you're off by that much for 100 years, you should notice that there's something wrong. So the question is, do they keep it for 100 years or do they somehow adjust? Okay. I see people getting antsy. Let's just, yeah. But yeah, so. basically when we're talking about things that were in the Dead Sea Scrolls, so we're talking about things that are dated to well before year zero. Everything here is, uh, not everything. Most things here are dated to well before year, well before year zero. 
If we talk about, which by the way, there is no year zero. I've never read a year zero. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Uh, but, but it goes from minus one to one, which I think is really wrong. But um, yeah. Um, but that's what you do. Yeah, yeah. But but so let me let me explain something here. In general, all these books are well before the we go call it the um, the turn of the millennium, right? Well before the hypothetical year zero, right? So uh, Enoch, the earliest books might even be uh, 250, 300 BCE. Many books are written around the Hasmonean period, say 160 BCE. Okay, so we're talking about books that are well before, well before the destruction, all right, alongside the Dead Sea Scrolls. An exception here in the Pseudepigraphus, Fourth Ezra. Fourth Ezra is a Jewish book written right after the destruction of the Second Temple. It's a reaction to the destruction of the Second Temple. It's put in the mouth of Ezra, who is reacting to the destruction of the First Temple. Okay, Ezra's supposed to be reacting to the destruction of the first temple. How did he live that long? He's also Ezra, Ezra not something that bothers the author. He's but reacting to the destruction of the first temple. This is the book of Ezra that's in the Bible? No. Uh, this is in, this is in, this is not the book of Ezra in the Bible. This is, this is the, this is in, how do we have this? This is in the Vulgate. Okay, this is in the Latin Bible. This made it in the Latin Bible. So that's how we have Fourth Ezra. It's much more involved than a Megillat Echa type thing. It's a very long thing where he starts talking about why God did you make Adam with this evil heart or that allowed him to have an evil heart that he passed on to his children so sin is inevitable. Then we get punished. Horrible things happen to us. This is a tragic, tragic, tragic situation. He gets an argument with an angel at some point. He has a revelation. Everything is better for him, right? Um... Um, but it's a much long, longer, drawn-out account with vision cycles. Yes, a lot of visions. There are a lot of visions. It's not a lamentation. It's a very long, by the way, Second Temple books are wordy. Really, really wordy. They don't say something in three words if they can say it in ten. It's amazing how wordy a lot of these things are, and so you have to kind of really cut it down when, for example, if you're teaching It's not like they have the inside story. Right, right. There's, there's an idea of the inside story with, with yes. Enoch. It's uh, with Jubilees. It's much more explicit. Yeah. It's like it's what this is what we call rewritten Bible. In other words, they take the biblical story and they rewrite it. Right. A rewritten Bible is it's like midrash. If the midrash were baked in, right? There's no distinction between this is what's in the Bible and this is the interpretation. Okay. One of the creative one. What language was were Jubilees was originally in Hebrew. Enoch was originally in Aramaic. Okay, um, I think people knew. But Enoch has fourth Ezra. I'm not sure we know for sure. I don't know if we know. Um, yeah. You said Enoch. There's bits of Enoch that are there hundreds of years between the different. There, there are different pieces, right? Because because these were different books that were just collected. Aramaic even. I I think for all the pieces they seem to be in Aramaic. I believe um, there's one. One of the books that we don't have a fragment of in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that's the one that people think is maybe Christian. So who knows with that one? But I believe that all the fragments they have of First Enoch they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls are in Aramaic. And, and Fourth no. Ezra is also in the Dead Sea Scrolls. No, Fourth Ezra is after the Second Temples. They couldn't have had in this. The Fourth Ezra is unusual among all these other books. All these other books I brought you, written in the Second Temple period. Fourth Ezra, written after the destruction, right after the destruction. Okay, but still a Jewish book and still fascinating because we don't have things from then. And this gets me to why do we care, right? And I know that everyone's a little bit sleepy uh-huh. now. This is the time to say why do we care, right? So we have this book and we have that book and we have the other book. Why do we care? So there are a bunch of reasons why we care. First of all, there's this huge gap in kind of the Jewish knowledge and knowing what Jews were thinking and saying and learning and in between the end of Tanakh and the beginning of Mishnah. Okay? Right? The Mishnah, the collation, the Mishnah is, is, is 200 CE, right? So we have this gap of hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, with these books, we can try to fill in the gap. Right? It's a missing link. And it also shows us things that are a little unusual that people were reading and sometimes were very popular, but were not necessarily in line with what they were saying in like, in like the, the mainstream Judea, right? Some of them are Judean, like Dead Sea Scrolls are all Judean, right? They're all from Yehuda, right? And in fact, any, usually, any book that's in the Apocrypha, even in the Pseudepigrapha, had a much wider range of readership than your average Dead Sea Scroll. 
Don't forget that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, now we're going to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls also in this class. I'm not like ignoring them. But I always want to remind people when you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, yes, it reflects a larger group of Judaism. And frequently the texts that we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls were not written by them. They were copied from other, like, so for example, like the Bible, like the biblical texts, like the text from Jubilees or text from Enoch, like uh, certain prayers that we can see were not their own prayers that they composed. They were composed outside of the community and they took them in. So the Dead Sea Scrolls not only reflect that sect, but also reflect larger groups of Judaism. Here, we get to even wider groups of Judaism, right? If we have a book that was written in Hebrew Aramaic and got to Alexandria and was translated into Greek, that's a popular book. That's something people really like to read. It's something that people believe in. And we can look at it both in how, in what the author was thinking. Like, why did the author need to feel the need to write Judith? Why the book of Judith? Why were they, why was this important? And also what the readers were getting out of it to make this so popular. Yes. Ezra the fourth Ezra sometimes is in study Bibles. In other words, fourth Ezra is this very weird situation because it made it into the, because it's in the Vulgate and it's called also second Estrus. Second Estrus is fourth Ezra. Yeah. So, so you will sometimes find it in like study Bibles and stuff like that. You'll sometimes find it in collections of the Apocrypha in the Jewish annotated Apocrypha, which is coming out of, from Oxford. They have fourth Ezra in it. In 2 Maccabees, it's, there's an argument. He's saying, oh, look at what, you, what Judah the Maccabee did. And that's how we know he believed in Chiatometim in the resurrection of the dead, right? Because he, he took the little idol things away. like you, and, and that's how we know, right? And you know that the person who's the author, he's arguing for the belief in the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. It's a polemic. There's an argument going on when the person's writing 2 Maccabees. Do we believe in this or not, right? This is one of the things when I talk to, to people who are like, oh, you know, but it's, everyone believes in, in Chiatimetim. Everyone believes in the resurrection at the end of time. And I'm like, well, no, not, ev- no, I mean, say, well, not this, this during by Cheney, things that people take for granted as like Orthodox Judaism and basic Orthodox Jude- Jewish belief were under debate. Right? And we can see that from these books, what they were debating and what everyone agreed at, on. Right? Philo, who's not one of these books, he's just a philosopher who does write in this period, and he's like, we all know, right, that the five books of Moses were given to Moses, right? I think it's, I think he says it, Sinai. Like, in other words, we know that this, that the belief in the five books of Moses from God to Moses were, was a, a, a standard belief in the Second Temple period, right? So there's certain things that we can say. We can say, um, and we learn that from some of these books, and some of these books are just like, they reflect reality. For example, a friend of mine argues fairly convincingly that the background of Tobit is it's a Jew who's living in a Zoroastrian context, and he has to deal with Zoroastrian beliefs as a Jew. And that's why he's emphasizing how important it is to bury your dead, because Zoroastrians don't bury their dead. And at the same time, he says, but we marry our cousins, who are as good as sisters, right? Like, they're, you know, I call her my sister, so like, we do that. We're cool, right? And then he's, it's talking about a Jewish, so a Jew, a Jewish person who's dealing in the context of some community that has Zoroastrian beliefs and practices. And this fascinating, just sheds light on Jewish communities in Judah, in the diaspora, on the communication between them, like you saw in Second, Second Maccabees, and there's just so much we can learn from these books that we didn't know before in our, in our jump from the Bible, from Tanakh to the Mishnah. So I hope uh, some of you continue to come and that you enjoy this class. Uh, in our next class, um, I'm going to start talking about biblical interpretation in some of these books and um, and rewritten Bibles. I hope you enjoyed that lecture. Of course, uh, please leave any questions or comments on the post at understandingsin.com. So look up Introduction to Second Temple Literature at understandingsin.com. Leave your questions or comments on the post, and I will address them either on the site or in a later episode. And I'll see you next time. You've been listening to Topics in the Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.